You're listening to Everyday Emergency, a podcast from Doctors Without Borders. Welcome to Everyday Emergency. I'm Nick Owen from Doctors Without Borders, also known as MSF. Tetanus has been known to humanity since at least the time of Hippocrates in the 5th century BC. In most developed countries, thanks to a vaccine, the disease is quickly becoming relegated to the past. But in 2013, the latest year for which estimates are available, it still killed roughly 59,000 people around the world, many of whom wouldn't have had access to the vaccine. Clostridium tetani, the tetanus bacteria, can be found almost anywhere. The moment our defences are compromised, whether by a blister on the sole of a foot or a traumatic amputation, and tetanus-laden earth gains access to our body, the bacteria begins to pump out a toxin which acts on the central nervous system, much like the pesticide and poison known as strychnine. The toxin interferes with our nervous system. Our nerves fire continuously, over and over, leading to ceaselessly spasming muscles. The stronger muscles of the body dominate in this response. Our back muscles arch backwards and lock, and our arms flex towards the chest with fists clenched. The sustained muscle contractions in the back are so powerful that they can break the spine. Our jaw muscles clamp down, causing an unintentional and horrific smile, giving the disease its colloquial name lockjaw, or the grinning death. Earlier this year, British paediatric nurse Johanna Bozovsky was posted on her first mission to a GOC in northern South Sudan. Soon after her arrival, she was faced with her first ever tetanus patient. As usual, this is a true story written by Johanna, but the words are read by an actor, this time by Pam O'Brien. One of the quirks of the neonatal unit is that our admission criteria includes not only unwell babies less than two months old, but also any person infected with tetanus, no matter their age. When it was first explained to me before I got here that I could expect to care for fully grown adults in my baby unit, I was confused. And the explanation, that this was because the neonatal unit was the quietest place in the hospital, didn't make sense to me either. I presumed the neonatal unit would be noisy with babies crying all the time, but actually that's not the case. Most of my babies are so small that when they do cry, which isn't often, it sounds more like a kitten mewing. But still, the prospect of caring for a critically unwell grown-up was strange for me as a paediatric nurse, and the thought of doing so alongside teeny tiny babies seemed downright odd. In the end, my first encounter with a tetanus patient didn't turn out to be a fully grown adult, but a small five-year-old boy. I had never seen someone with tetanus before, as most people in the UK are lucky enough to be vaccinated against it, but I had read about its horror. Patients are gripped with a violent and incredibly painful muscle spasm that causes them to grimace and contort. Since it's not only the voluntary muscles that are affected, but also the involuntary ones, the normal processes of breathing and swallowing can be disrupted, with the potential for the patient to drown in their own saliva. The muscle spasms can be strong enough to snap the bones, with the spine being particularly vulnerable, surrounded as it is by powerful back muscles. As if all this wasn't horrific enough, the worst thing about it is that despite the fact that to an outward observer the patient may appear to be having a convulsion, they will remain conscious throughout. 
The boy and his mother were transferred to us and immediately installed in one corner of the ward in a tent hastily constructed by logisticians out of blankets. This is because even the slightest stimuli can trigger an episode of spasms, so we try to keep tetanus patients in as dark and quiet a place as possible. Unfortunately, in this setting, living in a tent made of thick woolen blankets is horrific in itself. When the outside temperature is around 40 degrees, you can just imagine how hellish it is inside. The first time I approached the tent, I was nervous about what I would find. I pulled back the blanket just enough to squeeze myself inside, cautious not to let in any more light or sound than was necessary. I was instantly assailed by the furnace-like heat and the smell of sweat, urine and fear. With a click, the boy's mother turned on a small torch so that we were dimly illuminated, and as my eyes adjusted to the dark, my fears of what I would find were confirmed. Before me lay a small boy. His terrified eyes watched every move I made, but the rest of him was stiff, and his back arched and his hands balled into fists. His mouth was frozen in a joker-like grin, and his jaw was tightly clenched. As he saw me approach, he tried to get away, but he was unable, and anyway, there was nowhere to go. He began to cry or scream. It was hard to tell, as whatever sound he was intending to make was distorted into a gargling, choking noise as his head jerked backwards over and over. I was very aware that to this small boy, despite my best intentions, I was not a comforting figure. I knew that the medications I had with me, powerful painkillers and a muscle relaxant, would hopefully ease his suffering, but I had no way of communicating that to him. To this terrified five-year-old, I was another pale stranger who had come to stick needles or do mean, inexplicable things. I was so shaken after my first visit, I asked the CO if there was any hope for the boy, because what I had seen did not inspire any confidence in me that he would make it. The answer I received was non-committal. He had cared for four tetanus patients before, two had survived and two had died. We would just have to do our best and hope, wait and see. The first few days were tough in terms of nursing care. This little boy required treatment almost every hour, which is difficult enough when you have many small babies to care for at the same time. Not to mention the stress of knowing that the vital medications you are giving him can have the side effects of respiratory depression, meaning they can slow and worst case scenario stop your breathing. This would be stressful enough if he was attached to a monitor in a place I could see him, but here we had no monitor and he was at the back of the ward hidden by thick blanket walls. I just had to have faith that should anything go wrong when I wasn't there, his mother would notice and tell me, and hope that it would be in time. Unfortunately, the first few days also did nothing to dispel his fear of me and the team. Unlike our babies, this boy was big enough to make his resistance felt when he didn't want something, but still too young to understand that everything we were doing was in his best interest. Nasogastric tubes, intravenous cannulas all got ripped out in superhuman feats of determination to coordinate his disobedient muscles. I was impressed with his willpower, but distressed that every time he succeeded in removing the offending item, it just meant another harrowing and exhausting attempt to replace it. With time, though, he did seem to be improving. The episodes of full-body spasms, although still horrifying, did seem to be becoming slightly less frequent, and his jaw had loosened enough that he was able to report his complaints to his mother in just about intelligible words. 
After a few days, we had to give up on the nasogastric tubes. They only ever lasted a short time before he succeeded in pulling them out, and his mother kept giving him milk behind our backs because he said he was hungry. It was just a matter of luck that no ill-timed spasm sent that milk directly into his lungs. So in the end we compromised. No more tubes or milk, just thick, nutritionally enhanced paste that she could feed him slowly and stop at the first sign of a problem. It wasn't ideal, but somehow it worked. After seven days, he was improved enough that his mother decided to give him a bath. I fetched the plastic baby bath and we added a small amount of soapy water. We placed it on the floor by the entrance to the tent and she gingerly helped him out. He managed to slowly bend his knees enough that he could be lowered into the bottom of the bath, but his back and neck were still so stiff he wasn't able to bend them at all. The poor little thing sat there looking like a cross between a B-movie zombie and a robot, arms sticking out, back straight, the very picture of discomfort. For the other mothers on the ward, it was the first time they'd actually seen this little boy that had been the centre of so much attention and the creator of so much noise. But along with their curious stares and whispers of intrigue, they also offered encouragement and support for his first venture out of the darkness. The next day he came out of the tent again and spent a few hours lying on the vacant bed next to his. His spasms had really reduced by that point, but he was still incredibly stiff. The extra stimuli of being outside didn't seem to affect him anymore, so the day after that we finally took down the blanket tent. I was very glad to see the back of it, and even more delighted that its removal signified we had come through the worst of his illness. As much as I love my babies, the thing I really miss about working as a paediatric as opposed to neonatal nurse is the interaction with the children. High fives, peekaboo, silly games are all tools of my trade, and none are effectively employed on a neonatal ward. Now I had a five-year-old who was no longer in a critical condition and I was poised to play, play, play. But he hadn't forgiven me for our previous interactions. Put simply, he did not want to be my friend. I was determined to win him over. His mother and I got on well, so I knew she was putting in a good word for me, but he was steadfast in his mistrust. When I brought him the things I knew he liked, sweet syrupy medications and his food paste, he would grudgingly take them from me, a vast improvement from cowering away, but would look at me defiantly as if to say, this changes nothing. I liked him all the more for it. He was clearly as stubborn as I am. Despite the way I've described it, this wasn't an entirely self-indulgent exercise on my part. Children learn and develop through play, and I was well aware that this little boy had been sick for a long time, with an illness that could potentially impact his cognitive development. What's more, we still weren't sure what the long-term effects of his illness would be, not only mentally but physically. What he really needed at this point was to begin loosening those stiff, inflexible joints. And what better way to do this than by playing? The final part of my rationale was social. For a five-year-old to be only surrounded by adults and babies must be incredibly lonely and boring, with no toys or books or games to pass the time. I went on a charm offensive. Every morning on ward round, I'd create something different for him to play with, which wasn't particularly easy considering we weren't exactly overflowing with resources. The first day I made an elephant out of an inflated glove, the next day, a Simpson-esque face out of the same thing. Both times he watched what I was doing with intense curiosity, but then shied away when I presented them to him. 
The first day I left the elephant on his bed and walked away, only to see him pounce on it in the reflection in the window as soon as my back was turned. On the second day he carefully took the face out of my hands, but refused to look at me as he did so. I was gratified to watch him play with them both for the rest of the day. We suffered a minor setback on the third day. I arrived on the ward and was excited to see him happily shaking something small that was creating an almost musical noise. I couldn't work out what it was and he refused to show me, scowling as he hastily hid it behind his back. I decided to leave it alone and was happy he had been resourceful enough to create his own plaything. It only dawned on me later as the third member of staff approached me to complain that the stapler wasn't working, that what he was shaking was a small plastic container I'd recycled to store our staples in. It crossed my mind to feign ignorance and leave him to it, but I quickly realised that the system of keeping our medical records would grind to a halt without staples. What's more, by this point my assistants had also realised what it was he was playing with and were not impressed by the misuse of our materials. Now they knew what it was I couldn't be seen to be complicit in such wastage and I knew his mother would scold him for taking what wasn't his. So I quickly found a similar container and mimed for him to swap this with mine. I was satisfied that he now trusted me enough to do this but realised that this warming of relations would be short-lived when he realised that the one I'd given him didn't make any noise. He didn't complain, however, and I think he knew he would have been in trouble for taking them in the first place, and Staplegate was narrowly avoided. The next day I was racking my brains trying to think of something new to make him. In the end I recreated a glove face I'd made a few days earlier, but this time I found some scrap paper that I rolled and folded and taped to create a stick person style body. This caused great amusement among the mothers of the ward, particularly as it turned out to be almost as big as the boy in the end. By this point he was strong enough to walk around, but his legs were so stiff that he looked like an ill-at-ease soldier or someone from Monty Python. As he jerked around the ward with his new toy clutched in one hand, the glove face bounced around to and fro and I couldn't help feeling immense joy that we had made it this far, a million miles from our first meeting in the tent and all those days filled with stress and worry that he'd choke or stop breathing. The day after that it was time to say goodbye. He was still quite stiff, but by that point we were no longer giving him any medication. His body would continue to repair itself as best it could but there was no reason to keep him away from home or his mother away from her other children any longer. As I sat at my desk completing some of his transfer paperwork, I felt a presence by my side. Without any sharp movements, I turned my head and sure enough, there he was, only inches from my elbow, watching curiously as I wrote. It was the first time he had ever willingly come so close to me. Still moving slowly, I pushed a pen and a piece of scrap paper to the side of the table and nodded encouragingly as he grasped the pen with his stiff fingers and began to make marks on the paper. After a few minutes, he let me help him into a chair next to me and we spent a companionable half an hour, side by side, both engrossed in what we were doing. Several visitors to the ward joked that I'd found a new assistant to help with my paperwork and his mother was happy that I was entertaining him while she gathered their things together for the long journey home. I don't know whether he understood that he was leaving that day or if he was simply feeling better and was no longer scared that I'd do something mean. Either way, I'm very glad that we spent that time together. 
a chance to put the unpleasantness of the past aside and to recognise that it all worked out well in the end. After Johanna returned from South Sudan, we got her into the studio to have a chat about her first mission. Well, welcome to the podcast, Johanna. It's lovely to have you here. Thank you. So you've just got back from your first ever mission with MSF. Did it did it meet your expectations? Um, I think I was quite lucky that I've worked um, in similar situations before. So it wasn't all completely new to me. And I think that was a very much a protective factor because I expected the challenges and difficulties to be very real, which they of course were, but it wasn't a shock. In the, in the story we've just heard, mm. you talk about this young boy who comes in suffering from tetanus mm-hmm. and it's a, you know, it's a condition that's pretty much forgotten about here in the UK. Um, how did it how did it feel seeing it firsthand and, and treating a patient with it firsthand? It was terrifying. <laughs> I was really terrified. I mean, particularly because a patient like that in the United Kingdom would be in intensive care and he would probably have been ventilated and sedated and monitored around the clock with uh, one member of staff. And, and you know, the conditions we were in, it was terrifying to have a patient that they needed that level of care um but we managed it was all right yeah. it was it was scary it was hard work it was really hard work everyone worked so hard to 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 make sure that he was okay and luckily he was and that that wasn't a given it was a very real risk and it could have been very likely that our hard work would have not helped him but mm. luckily in this case it did and he he survived and it was wonderful yeah you talk about the how you cared for him in 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 the story, mm-hmm. giving him um, sort of pain relief and, and muscle relaxants. Mm-hmm. But is there a way to actually treat tetanus, or is it just something that a patient has to overcome themselves? Oh no! So we were treating as well. We were we okay. were giving medications as well um, uh, to try and yeah to try and fight actual tetanus. Yeah. But yeah, the the main as well as that, the main thing was symptom control because because it's so traumatic and horrible what he's going through that like sort of the patient ex- obviously we want to cure what's wrong mm. but the patient experience is is a huge part of that so pain relief muscle relaxants trying to remove any stimuli to stop um the spasms and some of those stimuli uh things like light and, and light and noise yeah. which is why I mean he was a five-year-old boy he shouldn't have been in the neonatal unit but all tetanus patients are treated in the neonatal unit just because um, they believe it's the quietest unit in the hospital are there any other sort of patients that really s- stick with you from your time in a gock as, as well as the the boy with tetanus yeah there's many many patients that stick with me and will stick with me forever oh I don't even know where to start there's so many my first week there um, was really, really difficult. And then we had this baby that survived against all the odds. I'll always remember him. Other babies as well that just sometimes just turned the corner. And it, it was like witnessing a little miracle. I remember I had one tiny premature baby and she was so sick, so sick, so much so that I even had, um, so the, the Ambu bag is what we used to resuscitate a baby. And at one point I was so worried that she was going to stop breathing because she was just so poorly. I even had sort of the Ambu bag like really close to her, already attached to, to everything, like everything within reach so that I could respond as soon as anything happened. And, and luckily I never had to use it. And she just somehow turned a corner and just got better and better. And I remember sort of two or three weeks after that point, just looking at her and being like, wow, that's 
I can't believe you made it. And I'm so glad you did because she was, she was one of a twin as well, actually. They were born at home and her twin died during delivery and then her mum brought the baby in and she was so sick. At one point she was vomiting blood. It was like just, just awful, just the sort of thing that I was just really not hopeful about. And she made it and she's fine. And that was really wonderful. That's great. Yeah. People listening to this podcast probably wouldn't have been to South Sudan, and I'd imagine that very few people would have been to Agok. Mm-hmm. Can you can you tell us a bit about the place and what it was like? Um, Agok, probably. I think they have, and I may be completely wrong, but I believe they have fifty to sixty thousand inhabitants. There's very very few brick buildings. Most people live in um, tukuls, which are kind of mud thatched huts. There's no tarmac on the roads. Most people um, have some livestock, like a goat or two. <laughs> um, there's not really. There is a market, um, which has slightly more um, solid buildings. But even that, it it wouldn't be like a market or something that you'd you'd see here. As expats living in the compound of MSF, there weren't shops or restaurants that we could go to because they just didn't really exist. We had a tea shop over the road, which was a big tree. And there was like a small hut where they prepared the tea. And then you had sort of plastic chairs under the tree that you sat on to drink the tea. And that that was the version of like Starbucks, I guess. (laughs) (laughs) Nice. What kind of stuff did you get up to in the evenings to, you know, unwind from, from working in the hospital? Quite often people were just really tired. We did do movie nights sometimes. We borrowed the projector from the training team and they put on a movie. Um, because of the nature of the, the team, there were quite often people joining the team or leaving the team. And whenever someone was leaving, um, we'd have a party that Saturday night. Um, so that was always really nice. And we'd have a barbecue normally. Um, and then everyone would get together. And then whenever someone's leaving, there's always lots of speeches. Um, yeah. So that was that was a nice sort of focal point once a week to all get together. So back home here in the UK, you're a you're a paediatric nurse, but the majority of the work you were doing in South Sudan was sort of neonatal, wasn't it? Yeah. So here I'm a paediatric emergency nurse. So I work in the A and E department. So a lot of my patients that I see will be neonates as well, but I see up to the age of sixteen. But um, obviously, that's in an emergency room environment. So being in an inpatient neonate ward is, is quite quite a departure from what I was doing here. Yeah. How did it, in, in your first blog post, or maybe maybe your second blog post, do you, you talk about sort of not having a handover and going in and then just stepping into the hospital and having to, you know, having to run this ward? How, yeah. how did that feel? Uh Scary. (laughs) I was lucky that my team of assistants were there and they had obviously been working there before. And the COs, the clinical officers, who they they kind of take the role of what a doctor would do here, um, they were very experienced and very knowledgeable. So they all kind of guided me through, which was invaluable. They're amazing. Um, They taught me loads. And yeah, I think it would have been a disaster if it hadn't been for um, those two teams of people. So that was really good. I owe them a lot. <laughs> You'd do it again, though, if you were given the chance. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. Well, thank you so much for coming in today and talking oh, to you. us. So that's it for this episode. Before we go, we'd just like to issue a couple of corrections. In the last episode of the podcast, we referred to tuberculosis as a virus, when of course it is in fact a microbacterium. We've re-recorded the segment and reposted it. 
We also said that this week we would be hearing a story about Ebola, but due to a scheduling issue, we've had to push Pierre's story to episode 9. Thanks for your understanding. If you have any questions about anything you've heard in this podcast, make your way to msf.org.uk slash podcast and leave us a comment. We've also posted links to other stories written by Johanna and pictures of her time in a gok. As always, we'd love to hear your feedback. Get in touch with us on Twitter at msf underscore UK, on Instagram at Doctors Without Borders, or on Facebook. Next time on Everyday Emergency... Emotionally, it was difficult. What I did there, I didn't do it elsewhere. That was the most extreme mission I did, for sure. We'll be speaking to Pierre Trebovich, an anthropologist and health promoter who, in 2014, travelled to Liberia to work in the largest Ebola centre ever built. Be sure to tune in. For more true stories from the front line of medical emergencies, subscribe via your podcast provider or visit msf.org.uk slash podcast.